friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. I'd like to entitle this uh, morning's sermon, Understanding the Full Meaning of Christmas. And I'm coming up with this topic because I feel that there is so much misunderstanding when it comes to Christmas. And so I'd like to be able to uh, put in my insights as we go into some scriptures, particularly in Isaiah 53. But before we start, I'd just like us to all rise from our seats and let's come before the Lord in prayer at this time. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we give thanks and praise for your birth because when you were born into this world, you had one mission in mind, and that was to die for our sins. And for that, O oh God, we Rejoice because we have been given certain hope. And this hope is something that continually causes us to persevere and endure. And it causes us, Lord, to rejoice in that hope that you've given us, O Lord. And so once again this morning, O God, please speak to us. And Lord, overcome the weaknesses of your servant, O Lord, this morning. Anoint my lips of clay so that as I speak, Lord, heaven will be heard this morning. We pray, O oh Father, for the mighty moving of your Holy Spirit, and we pray, Lord, that you might draw us to yourself. Allow us to grow in our affections towards you, O oh Father, and enlarge our faith, enlarge our vision of who you are and what you did for us. To the end, Lord, that your name might be glorified. And we confess this morning that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. Well, you and I do not have to be told that uh, December happens to be tr the traditional time wherein we celebrate the birth of of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we asked the question, was he really born in December? Specifically, was he really born on December 25? Well, off the bat, i just like to be able to say that nobody can actually be certain as to when exactly Jesus was born. For hundreds of years, there have been raging debates as to when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. There are some who say, well, He was born in December. And as I mentioned to you, that's the traditional time that often uh, people think when Jesus was born. There are some, however, who say, no, it was not in December. And they would say that Jesus was born in January. And yet again, there are some people who think that it is actually preposterous that Jesus was born in December because it was winter time. If you recall, 
uh, in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, we are told that the reason why Jesus went, or rather why Mary and Joseph went from Nazareth to Bethlehem was because there was a census that was required. And because uh, Joseph and Mary both originated from the Judean region, particularly Bethlehem, they had to go and register in Bethlehem at that time. Now, that took about three days' journey, all right? That's about three days' journey from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem riding a donkey. Now, consider also the fact that Mary was about nine months pregnant at that time. So you could just imagine maybe the three days may have been four days, actually, because uh, they may have to rest every now and then because Mary was heavy with her baby. And so think about this. The travel time from Nazareth to Bethlehem during winter would actually be very, very oppressive, most especially for a mother who is about to give birth. I'm not in any way suggesting that it is impossible to travel during winter time. I'm just saying it would be extremely difficult. Now, having said that, what I'm really trying to share to you is that we cannot really be certain as to the date when Christ was born. And to go into all these debates, I think, is really irrelevant. What is really important to us as believers in Christ is that Christ was born. Amen? That is what is important. And so we rejoice in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ because He was born to save us. And because of this reason, I think it is a good thing to celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, it doesn't have to be on December 25. In fact, as far as I am concerned, I think we should be celebrating Christmas every single day of our lives because Christmas actually talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we celebrate Christmas, I think that there is something that is amiss in many of the celebrations of Christmas. And I'd like to be able to talk about the full meaning of Christmas. Now, first of all, I'd like you to understand the etymology of the word. The word Christmas actually comes from two words. Now, the one, one is obvious, which is Christ, and the other one is Mass. And the Mass actually speaks about the Eucharist or the Lord's table or communion. And what is communion all about? Well, it's the celebration of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that we cannot separate the very important events in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. My problem sometimes is we tend to celebrate the events of Jesus Christ's life separately. Like we celebrate the birth of Christ independently. We celebrate the death of Christ independently. And that is what we also do when it comes to His resurrection. And I would like to submit to you, friends, that 
I think that that is somehow flawed because we need to be able to connect all of these events together to be able to fully celebrate in Christmas. Because the truth of the matter is, if you separate some of these events, it will not be Merry Christmas for us. And so I'd like to be able to share to you uh, certain things that I think would add to our understanding of Christmas. Uh, One of the things that Isaiah did for us is that he was able to mesh all of these events together, the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ in one chapter, in Isaiah chapter 53. And I think that is the best treatment of Christmas, and that is where I will be going near the end of my sermon. Now, I would not want to minimize, however, the powerful and supernatural events of the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Independently, they speak of God's power and might. But again, as I mentioned to you, we lose the essence of the gospel when they are not treated as an integrated whole. Now, let's talk about three points right now, and these are things that we will be talking about in the next hour or so. First of all, I'd like to be able to talk about the power of Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. And we will do that and show to you how powerful each event was, how supernatural it was, how miraculous it was. Then we will go into the powerlessness of these events when you rip them apart. When you take them apart, they lose their power and their significance and their relevance to us in so far as our salvation is concerned. So, after that, we will proceed to the power of these events taken as a whole. And there we will go to Isaiah chapter 53 and take a look at the whole work of Jesus Christ in the matter of salvation. But first up, let's talk about the power of Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. And this time, I'd like to treat them independent of each other. So, for the supernatural power of Christ's birth, I'd like us to take a look at Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verses 18 to 25. And here's what it says. It goes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of Bible scholars say that Mary was not really a, uh, an adult woman. I mean, we're talking about in terms of how we view women as adults right now. Many Bible scholars would say that she was around 13 or 14 years old. But during that time, that was actually a marriageable age. And so we are not surprised with that, most especially when we go to the historical records of the Bible, we find that they had so many children. And so Mary, according to some Bible scholars, was around that age, 13 and 14 years old. Very young, very innocent, and you might even say very naive. She was betrothed, according to the Scriptures, to Joseph. Now, betrothal is one, in one way similar to our engagement. 
but it is a little different in that betrothal was actually considered as very much part of marriage already. So that it is much stronger than the modern-day engagement that we talk about. And so, this was binding already. It was as if the couple were already married except that they did not physically or sexually consummate it. Now, there is a problem that we find here. There's, there's an issue that uh, Joseph discovers here because it says, before they came together, meaning to say before they had physically consummated the marriage, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, try to imagine how difficult the situation was in the case of Mary. Mary, of course, had this encounter with the angel, with an angel, and the angel told her that she would give birth to the Savior. She would give birth to the Messiah. And Mary knew this was going to be quite difficult because uh, the angel was talking about a supernatural birth. And so I believe that at that time, there were many things that were running through the mind of Mary. For example, how would Joseph react to this? Secondly, will he believe my story? Will he believe that an angel appeared to me and told me that I would be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Savior of Israel? Would he believe my story? You could just imagine the struggle that she had, but to the credit of Mary, she told the angel, the will of the Lord be done. So she was willing to go through all the challenges and all the difficulties that were involved in being the mother of the Savior, the mother of the Messiah. But eventually, of course, she had to reveal this to Joseph. Now, we do not know exactly how she revealed this. I don't know if what had happened was she had morning sickness and she started to puke and Joseph may have noticed it and he probably wondered what is happening to Mary and maybe Mary confessed it to him. We don't really know the circumstances. But what we know is that ultimately Mary had to tell the story. And obviously, Joseph did not believe the story. And we are told here, look at what happens in verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So what may have happened here was Joseph was thinking during that conversation, Mary, you're telling me that you're going to have a child by the Holy Spirit and that you are the, the mother of the Messiah? Do you expect me to believe that? I believe the conclusion that Joseph came up with was that Mary became unfaithful, that she made it out with another man, and that was the reason why she got pregnant. And we are told here, here that Joseph wanted to put her away secretly. Actually, what that means was that Joseph wanted to secretly divorce Mary, not to cause her embarrassment and humiliation, but at the same time, he could not get married with somebody who was unfaithful to him at the betrothal stage, not even married yet. 
formally. And so this was the difficulty that we find in this situation. And we're told in verse 20 what, what happened in the case of Joseph. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now just for a moment, think about this. This has never happened in the history of mankind. That a virgin would have a child by the Holy Spirit. Now, scientifically speaking, you cannot wrap your brains around this particular event. This was something that was miraculous, something that was so powerful, and only God was capable of doing that. And somehow, as we take a look at this story, I don't want us to miss the power of God. I don't want us to miss the miracle that was performed here. Because that somehow strengthens our faith. That God can go beyond what is natural and do something miraculous. Something that is out of the ordinary. Something that has never ever been done before. That is who our God is. That is the God that you and I worship. And just by looking at this event and this story, this should somehow strengthen our faith. And you might have challenges, challenges similar to Mary or challenges similar to Joseph. And probably at this time in your life, you're going through some period of depression. Actually, it's quite interesting. The studies have been made and they have discovered that a lot of people actually get depressed of all seasons during Christmas. And perhaps one of the reasons why that happens is because we don't really understand what it means. Because we think it's about gift-giving, or we think about reunions, we think about parties and gimmicks and all of that, and we think that's what Christmas is all about. And when we begin to compare ourselves, our gifts, our salary, what we have or what we do not have with other people, it may cause us to become depressed and discontent. I don't know what challenges you are facing. But I'm here to tell you that our God is an almighty God. Amen? He is an all-powerful God, and there is nothing impossible with Him. And so the story goes on, and it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she, will, she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So the picture here gets, gets even bigger and brighter. It becomes even more awesome when you begin to think about the fact that this baby was not just an ordinary baby. This baby happened to be God, the second person. In the blessed trinity, the Son of God himself would be incarnated. He would be born in the flesh. Again, something that never ever happened in the history of the world. That God would take on flesh. That God would become man. And that actually is very humbling on the part of God. And think about the fact 
uh, Jesus was born in a manger. A manger, of course, is where animals feed themselves. We are told that there was no room in the inn. And I think that happened because all the people from all parts of Israel were going to Bethlehem to register for the census if they were born there. So obviously, all the inns were filled up, and the only thing they could find was either a stable or a cave where Jesus was born, and there Jesus was placed in a manger. How humbling is that, that our Savior would be born in a manger? How humbling is that, that there is no room available for our Savior. And you and I know that God the Father, God the Son knew the exact circumstances by which Jesus would be born. And yet there are no complaints on the part of our Lord and Savior. Which tells us, by the way, that right at the onset, the mission of Jesus Christ was to serve. That's why we rejoice in our Savior because He is not just a Savior. He is a servant king. And He came to serve. And that's exactly the picture that we get here. A humble servant being born in our midst. God Himself being born in our midst. What a very powerful story this is. And it says here, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. So finally, he was convinced with Mary's story and they got married. Now here's the thing. Take a look at verse 25. It says, but Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And so Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ as a virgin. Joseph did not touch her physically. But let me just tell you, that was not something that continued on because what the Bible says is Joseph kept her a virgin until. So there's a time when this stopped, until she gave birth to a son. And then they physically consummated the marriage sexually, and they had children. That's the reason why in the Gospels we find that Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. So perish the thought that, G that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She did not remain a virgin for all time. She was only a virgin until the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But think about the power of this event. Think about God breaking into the history of mankind and becoming part of us. What a wonderful story that is. I was actually very touched by what R.J. shared at the beginning of his exhortation when John Piper talked about this imaginary conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Remember, the Bible calls us enemies of God, right? The book of Romans tells that very clearly, that you and I are enemies of God. And the reason why we are enemies is because we have offended Him. We have offended His holiness. We have sinned against Him. And that's the reason why we are His enemies. And in this imaginary conversation between God the Father and God the Son, R.J. was saying, and I think he was quoting John Piper, God the Father was saying, I have enemies on earth. 
I have people who have rebelled against me, who are apostates, people who are idolaters, people who are into immorality. They are my enemies. And then he turns to his son and he says, Son, I want you to go, be born on earth, and die for their sins. Think about the power of that mission. Here is God the Father with enemies all over the earth. Every single one of them is an enemy of God. And yet God sends His only begotten Son. For what reason? To die for His enemies. To die for their sins. Think about that. You and I were enemies of God. And yet God had decided that God had decided that Christ would come and die for our sins. That in itself is so powerful. It's very difficult to wrap your brains around that, most especially when we consider how we normally respond and react to our enemies. This is not how God reacts. And this is, this is to show to us how transcendent God is. His love is transcendent. His forgiveness is transcendent. His, His holiness, His justice is transcendent. Everything about God is so beyond us. And yet, we as puny, tiny beings are still recipients of the manifold grace of God. What a wonderful story Christmas is. Now, let's talk about not only the birth of Christ, let's talk about the supernatural power of God when He died, talking about Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at John chapter 10, please, and verses 17 and 18. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, some people actually miss out on what this is really trying to say. What this is saying, actually, in verses 17 to 18, is that the death of Jesus Christ was actually supernatural. It was miraculous. And why do we say that? Is, is dying supposed to be miraculous? We all die. There's nothing miraculous about dying in this world. Well, we forget the nature of Christ. He's not like us. You know the reason why we die? The reason why we die is because we're sinners. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 states, the wages of sin is death. That's the reason why we die. That's the reason why we age. That's the reason why we will be buried six feet below the ground, unless, of course, the rapture takes place in our generation. But the fact is, nobody is exempted from death, and the fact that you and I die means only one thing. We're sinners. Now, that is not who Jesus is. Jesus were, was perfect. Pilate recognized that he was innocent, that he was not guilty. Everybody else recognized that he was innocent, that he was sinless. God the Father himself proclaimed in the baptism of Jesus Christ, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
And Jesus himself said that the Father is pleased with me because I do the will of the Father. We're talking about perfect and complete obedience on the part of Jesus Christ. He is really set apart from us. So the fact that he never, ever sinned, even as a human being, he could not die. He could not die because death is a function of sin. Jesus was sinless, so he could not die. Secondly, of course, we understand he's the Son of God. So how could the Son of God die? How could somebody who is sinless and spotless die? And this is the reason why this is miraculous, because Jesus says, notice what he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I, who's the I here? This is Jesus, because I lay down my life. This was voluntary on the part of Christ. He chose to die. He could not die. He was immortal, but he chose to die. Notice what he says in verse 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Think about this. This is so mind-blowing. The immortal Son of God, the perfect man that He was, fully God and fully man, chooses to die for us. And the way it happens is supernatural. The way it happens is by divine intervention. The way it happens is not because there is something external that causes it, like people killing the Lord Jesus Christ. No, He lays down His life. It was His choice. And when you think about that, that not only speaks about the power of Christ, that speaks about His love. Amen? This was on His own initiative. It was not like He was pushed by the Father to do the will of the Father. No, this was something that was voluntary on the part of Christ. He was willing to do this. In fact, near the time He was about to be crucified, we are told that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And there was nothing that was going to stop him from heading towards Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was going to be the place of his sacrifice. Nobody was going to impede him. Nobody was going to hinder him. He had decided that he would die, not just for the whole world, friends, but for you as an individual. Think about that long and hard. As the book of Hebrews says, that He tasted death for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us. You know what that tells me? That tells me that even if you were the only person in the world, He'd still die for you. He would still die for you. That is what it means. The book of Timothy says that He does not desire for anyone to perish. Now take a look at the events that surrounded the death of Christ. Therein you also see the power of God. Let's take a look at Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke 23, beginning at verse 44. It says, it was now about the sixth hour. Now that's not six o'clock. That's Jewish time. That's lunchtime. That's 12 o'clock. All right? I want you to have this perspective. Now it was about the sixth hour. 
12 o'clock, our time, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. So we're talking about three hours of darkness. When Christ was crucified, when He died, all of a sudden, that place in Jerusalem became totally dark for three long hours. It was as if God was making a statement at that time. It was as if God was saying, I am part of this. I am doing something in your midst. You just crucified the Son of God. You just rejected the Son of God. And here I am, I am demonstrating to you that you did not kill an ordinary man. You killed the Son of God. It says here, verse 45, because the Son was obscured. We're talking about an eclipse here. And not only that, the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top all the way to the bottom. You know how thick that veil was? It's as thick as my fist. Try tearing something as thick as that, and you and I know we can't do it unless, of course, with the aid of a machine or something very powerful. But humanly speaking, nobody can tear something like that. It had to be God. It had to be God to tear that veil from top to bottom. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now how could he know that? It was the revelation of the Father. But the events that took place at that time made him conclude that this was not an ordinary man. It made him conclude that this was the Son of God. And perhaps, based on another gospel, he may have accepted Christ. The centurion may have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of his life at that time. Think about the power of that event. Think about being in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Think about lunchtime, and all of a sudden, it becomes dark for three long hours. What would enter your mind? You know something's happening. You know that something supernatural has taken place. But not only that, take a look at Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and, and appeared to many people. Now, the graves of that time were usually caves wherein you have, you know, circular boulders. And it had to be rolled out by several people just for you to be able to enter a particular tomb. Now, think about how this was multiplied in so many tombs. Think about dead people coming out of those tombs and starting to walk. And even probably knocking on the doors of, of their friends and their relatives. These were people who had died for months or years. And all of a sudden, they come in the flesh. It must have been something that really spooked them. 
it must have caused their, their hairs to rise. Now, that would not be a problem with me, of course. Goosebumps and everything. That must have been what had happened. And you know what? With these events taking place, with, with dead people rising back to life and walking and doing things that they used to do before, it was surreal. It was something that was out of the ordinary. This was really something that had never, ever happened in the history of the world. So not only was the birth of Christ supernatural, even the death of Christ and the events surrounding the death of Christ, there was something supernatural about it. I mean, even if you separate those events, you would just simply be in awe of God, Lord, how mighty and how powerful you are. Which, by the way, tells us that you can't marginalize God in your life. You can't just put God in the sidelines of your life. How can we do that to somebody as mighty and powerful as our God? How could He be simply on the periphery of our lives? How can He not be part of the equation of our marriages, of our families, and of what we do? Our lives should actually revolve around Him. And we are told in the Scriptures that we are not supposed to live for ourselves, but we are supposed to live for God and live for Christ to the end that we bring glory to His holy name. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop the clock and stop what we're doing and stop our jobs. No, we go about our daily living, but with the consciousness and awareness that there is a mighty and all-powerful God who watches over us and who is deeply concerned about how we live our lives, who desires that we become well-pleasing and that we honor and glorify His holy name. Only then, friends, do we truly experience satisfaction and true joy and peace when our hearts find their rest in God Himself. All of these stories that we're reading speak about the awesomeness and the power of our God. Now, let me just tell you, not only was the birth of Christ supernatural, not only was His death supernatural, even His resurrection was supernatural. Let's take a look at Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1 and following, please. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, that's Sunday, that's why we worship on Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now think about this. Just the other day, or just three days before, there was this eclipse, there was darkness for three hours. There were dead people who rose from the tomb, and Jesus breathed his last, and even his breath actually caused the centurion to say that he was innocent and that he was the Son of God. All of that, and then all of a sudden, 
this powerful miracle, an earthquake now takes place. And I believe it was such a powerful earthquake, everybody felt it. I don't think it was intensity four or intensity three, wherein some would say, did you feel that? Now, this was really something that was really strong and really powerful. In fact, we are told it was a severe earthquake. This was literally earth-shaking. Their houses were shaking. The temple was shaking. The palace of Herod was shaking. The governor's house was shaking. Everybody else's house was shaking. And to top it all, Jesus rises from the grave. An angel appears in all his glory. And guess what? The guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I mean, if you and I were there, you and I would be astounded. You and I would be in awe. It would set off our minds into thinking, really thinking seriously about the events that had taken place and the significance and relevance of it. All of these events, even if you take them separately, are powerful in themselves. But having said that, I'd like now to be able to say that these events are powerless if you take them apart. So when you read all the supernatural power involved in this, you cannot help but be in awe of God, and yet taken separately, they hold no significance whatsoever when it comes to our salvation. Let me just prove my point. The birth without the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ would just be a supernatural, creative work of God, never before done in the history of mankind, but it would not save our souls. Secondly, there could also be no death and payment for our sins if Christ was not born in the flesh. This was something that had to happen. Christ had to be born. Because how can somebody die if he's not existing? How can somebody die if he is not born? How can somebody pay for somebody's sins if he is not born? Thirdly, the death of Christ without the resurrection would have no saving effect. Let me quote to you 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1 all the way to, sorry, 15, 13 to 17 rather. It says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. This is Paul speaking. Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, listen up, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. So if Christ was not resurrected, you and I would still be in our sins. Now, what was the function of the resurrection? The function of the resurrection is validating the death of Christ 
as having paid for our sins. In the same way that when you go to a restaurant, how do you prove that you've paid? When the waiter goes to you and once again asks you to pay for the bill that you've already paid for, what do you do? What do you present to the waiter? You present a receipt. And you tell that person, don't double charge me. Don't charge me again because I'm paid up. And the proof of that is this receipt. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is our receipt. When Satan confronts us and condemns us, he is called the accuser of the brethren. And many times he, he talks to us and, and brings us down and he talks dirty against us. And he tells us how, how dirty, how filthy, how ugly, how perverse and how wicked and how unfaithful we are. He talks to us about our sins even after we have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. He makes us doubt our salvation. But friends, you know what? All we need to do is show the receipt to His face and say, My Savior has paid it all. Amen? My Savior has paid it all. I'm free. I'm going to heaven, not because I deserve it, not because I'm sinless, but because my Savior imputed His righteousness on me, and the receipt of that is His resurrection. Fourth, of necessity, there can be no real resurrection if there is no real death. Now, some would say, well, that's... That's only logical. Well, the interesting thing is that 30 years after the death of Jesus Christ, there were some people who were actually teaching that Jesus did not really die, that He did not even come in the flesh. They were teaching that the one who supposedly died on the cross or Christ dying on the cross was really just an illusion because Christ was never really born and he never really died. And friends, let me just say this. There can be no real resurrection if there is no real death. Jesus died, and he died for our sins. So the only conclusion I can come up with here is that the birth and the resurrection of Christ need to be meshed together. The birth, the death, and the resurrection need to be meshed together. And this is what... Isaiah does for us, and he does it so powerfully, obviously with the help and aid of the Holy Spirit. So we see that in Isaiah 53. So now let's take the power of these events taken as a whole. And so let's talk about the birth of Christ, which Isaiah 53 talks about. It says here, verse 2, by the way, this was, think about this. Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years even before Jesus Christ came. And notice how accurate this all is. Confirming to one and all that Christ indeed is the promised Savior and Messiah. But let's look at the birth first of all. Verse 2 reads, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And what does that speak of? That speaks about the birth of Christ. 
The picture we are given here is of a tender shoot. And in our recent trip to Israel, we were shown how an olive tree is able to survive for thousands of years. It's a very sturdy and strong tree. It can survive seasons of no rain, and yet it could still survive. And one of the things that you will discover with olive trees it's sometime, it's sometimes, you know, there are shoots that come out of the root to form another tree, all right? And notice what it says here. It comes out of parched ground, dry ground. And basically, if you go to Israel, there's a lot of parched ground there. And if you think about the situation during the time of Jesus Christ, the situation was parched, so to speak. They were under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was heavily taxing the Jews, and most of them were in deep poverty. A lot of them were losing hope. A lot of them were desperate. But during this dark time in the history of Israel, a shoot comes out. A baby is born, and that is Jesus Christ. And it says here, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Isn't that interesting? Not only was Jesus born in humble circumstances, He had a humble appearance. All, the, all of the, practically almost all the kings of Israel were handsome men. We are told in the Scriptures that Saul was handsome and that he was head and shoulders above all the rest of the men in Israel. We are told that David was handsome. We are told that Solomon was handsome as well. And so we have a lot of kings who were stately and majestic in appearance, but not Jesus. He was ordinary, very ordinary that it says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus chose to be born with a humble appearance. And so we thank God He was born in our midst to serve us. Let's talk about His death, which Isaiah talks about. Look at verse 3, and here's what it says. He was despised, talking about Christ, and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Hundreds of years before this happened, Isaiah already prophesied that Jesus would be rejected by his fellow Jews. He would be rejected by men. He would be despised by men. Isaiah accurately tells us exactly what is going to happen hundreds of years later. Then it says in verse 4, and this is what was his mission, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now this is something I'd like to point out. And one of the reasons for the Nazi Holocaust and this is according to our Israeli tour guide, and I've read up some material that basically states the same thing. To a certain extent, Martin Luther um, was, I would say, guilty of anti-Semitism to a certain extent. 
but it was carried long and far by other people. That's why Moti, our tourist guide, was saying, one of the reasons why they were killing us is because they said, we killed Jesus. The question is, did they kill Jesus? Technically speaking, it was not the Jews that killed Jesus Christ. It was the Roman soldiers. They were the ones who killed Jesus Christ. Now, does that excuse or exonerate the Jews? No, because they handed him over. And friends, if you really think about it from a broader perspective, the truth of the matter is you killed Jesus. The truth of the matter is I killed Jesus. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die in our place, and it was our very sins that put Jesus on the cross. But aside from that, we have to be reminded that this was the will of God. Notice what it says here, smitten of God. This was the plan of God after all. That's why I really, really like the exhortation of RJ right at the very beginning in this imaginary dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father saying, I have so many enemies and I'm sending you to die for them. Think about that. Jesus dying for his enemies, for the enemies of the Father. But this was the will of God. The plan of God. How great is the love of God. Notice verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Not his transgression. Our transgressions. Our unfaithfulness. Our lying. Our cheating. Our adulterous thoughts. Our, our bitter thoughts. Our pride. Our arrogance. Our materialism. Our transgressions. Not his our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The word crushed here, again, I think I mentioned to you, the process when they crush olives. First of all, there's a boulder that is uh, uh, forced to uh, push down and press on the olives while a donkey uh, goes in circular ways. And then later on, it's put uh, on another stone and then crushed again. That's the picture here. Our Lord was crushed. Every ounce of His being was, was being poured out into this event. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. You know what that means? We were the ones who were supposed to be on the cross. But the chastening, it says here, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Jesus said, step aside I'm going to die for you. That's what this is saying. And by His scourging, we are healed. Now, this is not talking about physical healing. I hear so many pastors talking about physical healing. Look at the context. This is not talking about physical healing. Now, do I believe in physical healing? Most definitely. I've seen that many times over. I'm perfectly convinced that it is. But this is not talking about physical healing. This is talking about spiritual healing. Because we are spiritually sick. That's... That's our condition. Think about what happens in many of our families, in our marriages. The quarreling, the selfishness, the bitterness, the anger that takes place. What does that tell us? We're spiritually sick. How we treat our children sometimes, how we abuse them verbally. And sometimes some people do even worse. They, they sexually abuse their own children. 
Think about that. Think about what Kim Jong-un is conjuring right now. All the threats that are taking place and the only thing that's stopping him from sending missiles everywhere is God's sovereignty. But think about if everything in this world goes haywire and God allows us to just do what we want to do, we will just destroy each other. We will just kill each other. That is what's going to happen. If, if our sinful nature is just let loose, that's exactly where this world will go into. We are spiritually sick. Thank God we have spiritual healing. Amen? Amen? We give God the glory. We give God the praise for that. It says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's what's happening right now, most especially right now. Relativism. It's really what I believe. It's what I think. There are no absolutes right now. It's, it's your way and my way. Everybody has his own way. There are no absolutes right now. Think about how that's going to destroy this world that we're living in. It says here, but the Lord, and there you go again, but the Lord, it's the Lord's plan. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. God the Father planned it. Jesus Christ executed the plan. And He said, let it fall on me. Let your wrath fall on me, O God. Let all your anger, let all your righteous anger fall upon me, O God. I'm ready to receive your wrath. I'm ready to take in all their sins, bear their iniquities, and die for them. Jesus took it all. All of it. The billions of sins that have, committed, that have been committed in this world, He took it in. He placed it upon Himself. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. You know, lambs and sheep, they're so gentle. In fact, that's the reason why in Israel, sometimes they're treated as household pets because they're quite affectionate, all right? They're very affectionate. They're cuddly. And, and again, just imagine what happens during offerings and sacrifices when, when they have to slit the throat of the sheep. And you won't hear them complaining. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus knew exactly the cup that He was about to drink. And yet, He was not going to spit it out. He was going to take it all in. He was going to drink the cup of suffering. It says here, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away and asked for his generation who considered that he was, look at this, that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Oh, this is so powerful. Hundreds of years before this happens, guess what? Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus would die. He would be cut off from the land of the living. Now, how accurate could this be? I mean, this is so accurate to the letter. 
And there is no shadow of doubt. I mean, if you have an open mind and an open heart, there is no shadow of doubt that Jesus fulfilled everything in Isaiah 53 to the letter. He was cut off from the land of the living. For what? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke was due to you. The stroke was due to me. The stroke was due for all of us. He took it. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Who was Jesus with when he was nailed to the cross? He was with two what? He was with two thieves. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. It says his grave was assigned with wicked men because when you die, and you need to understand that the death on the cross was a criminal punishment, all right? So he was supposed to die with a common grave among criminals, among wicked men. That was going to be his assignment. But notice the twist. Look at how accurate the Bible is. Notice it says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet... Here's the twist. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. He was supposed to be assigned with criminals, and yet, guess what? Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy person, takes his body, puts it in his own grave. How accurate the Word of God is. If you still doubt Jesus, You've closed your mind. Amen? This is so clear. It is as clear and as bright as day. This is talking about Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled everything to the letter. Hallelujah. And that's why when you study this, your faith just grows. Amen? Your faith is just strengthened. And you're inspired. And you're not worshiping a false god. You're worshiping the one and only true God. But not only did Isaiah prophesy about the birth and the death of Christ, he prophesied about his resurrection. All in one chapter. Look at verse 10, please. But the Lord was pleased, again, the Lord, God's will. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render him as a guilt offering. Now, does this sound familiar to you? Remember, in the Levitical law, they made guilt offerings for sins that they committed. Jesus became our guilt offering. It says here, he will, look at this. He will see his offspring. That's talking about his spiritual children. And then he will prolong his days. Now, think about this. Isaiah just prophesied that he would be cut off, and then in verse 10, he says he will prolong his days. So what do you think Isaiah was talking about? He is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? All in one chapter. All the powerful events that you and I were talking about, Isaiah prophesied. Our Jesus will rise from the grave. And Jesus knew it, and he told them, on the third day, I will rise again. And on the third day, he rose again. Amen? And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. 
It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will justify the many just as if you have not sinned. Declared innocent. Declared not guilty. That is the verdict for those who accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12 speaks about his exaltation. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What does verse 12 talk about? It talks about his exaltation. Philippians chapter 2 says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord of all. Amen? Jesus is worthy to be exalted. So only when you take these powerful events, the birth, the death, and the resurrection, only when you pull them together does it really hold meaning for our salvation. Because if it was just the birth of Christ, it's not Merry Christmas. If it's just the death of Christ, it's not going to be Merry Christmas. If it's just the resurrection, it's not going to be Merry Christmas. It will merely be an illusion if you separate it from His birth and His death. We have a Merry Christmas. Why? Because thank God Christ was born. Thank God Christ died. And thank God Christ rose again. That's why we have a Merry Christmas. Amen? Merry Christmas. And remember this, Merry Christmas is not December 25. It's every single day of our lives. Amen? It's Merry Christmas to us. Give the Lord a big hand, please. Give Him a big hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and bless You for this wonderful time You've given us, O oh God, to just remember You. Sometimes with the hustle and bustle of all the activities during Christmas, we forget the single most important person and work that we are supposed to celebrate, and that is You and what You did for us. So, Father, warm our hearts. Let it grow in its affection towards You, O Lord, as we see a mighty Savior, a mighty King who serves us all and who died for our sins. Lord, we rejoice in all of Your goodness and in all of Your love. We thank You, O God, that Christmas to us is not one day in a month, but Lord, it is every single day of our lives as we celebrate Your birth, Your death, and Your resurrection. We, may we keep that in our minds and in our hearts even as we go about with our activities, our parties, our reunions, our time together with friends, 
Lord, may we celebrate you because you deserve it all. And Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for our tithes and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And Lord, we pray that you might bless and prosper us, not because we want to be greedy people. Lord, we just want to bless you even more. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen.